Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, and God's Word to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a rather large portion of Scripture uh, this morning, uh, but we're going to read it in sections. So we're going to start in verse 14 and read through verse 30 for now. And then we'll uh, keep going through the end of the chapter as we continue our way on this morning. Beloved saints, this is our God's word. Set aside for us to read this morning that we might know him. And in knowing him, we might know life. And so let us give our attention to the reading of it. Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding county, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers, in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. On the sentence the reading of God's word, At this point, uh, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you. We long to see you revealed within the scriptures. And so we ask that you would open to us the beauty of your word, open our eyes and our hearts to behold the King of glory, and give us faith to receive all that we see. Amen. You may be seated. How do you think you would respond if your childhood best friend became president? 
You know that kid you used to run around with, get in trouble with, that kid you scraped your knees with, climbed trees with, argued with, wrestled with, fought with, and snuck out to TP someone's house? That kid. Could you bring yourself to call him Mr. President, call her Madam President? Could you submit the way you would to a complete stranger who was president and show the same respect and deference? Or would your deep familiarity, would your intimacy with that person actually be a barrier to treating him or her with the respect due the office? You see, we have a problem showing respect Uh, to leaders we know well. We don't have a problem with leaders whom we've just met, whom we've only known as leaders. Like, Like when we're kids, we don't think our teachers are real people. But it's hard to show deference. It's hard to show respect to people that we've known all their lives. We say things like, I changed his diapers. (laughs) He's nothing special. I was there when he broke my action figure and I still haven't forgiven him. What makes her think she's so great? The reality is, the closer you are to someone, the harder it can be to appreciate and respect his or her authority. Sometimes being overly familiar can actually keep you from knowing someone fully because you're unwilling to get to know certain aspects. If you already think you know someone, it might be hard to come to appreciate another aspect of who they truly are. It might be hard to recognize their ability to lead, their prerogative to lead. And as our passage makes clear this morning, this was true for Jesus when he went back to his hometown of Nazareth. It was those in that hometown who had the hardest time respecting him as his public ministry began. In many ways, that struggle was then reflected by his whole nation, the people of Israel, his own people. They struggled more than many Gentiles to respect and appreciate who he is. They thought they knew him well. They thought they knew who he was, and that assumption kept them from truly knowing him. Uh, Last time, before Pastor Brian preached, uh, two weeks ago when we uh, were in Luke, we looked at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by the devil and saw the importance of knowing your enemy. We're to fight the the temptations of the evil one, our enemy. We need to know his tactics. But today we want to see, as important as that is, it is even more important to know your Lord. We need to acknowledge that it is those who often think they know him the best, those raised in the church, those who have been Christians a long time, It can be hard for these to be challenged, to learn, and yes, to submit. 
And so we need to guard against these temptations. We need to look at the reception of Jesus uh, in Nazareth and the reception of Jesus in Capernaum and how these two receptions highlight how people see him. And my hope is, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that to truly recognize Jesus requires bowing to his authority. To truly acknowledge who he is requires that we bow to him and submit to him. And that means we are going to have to challenge our own assumptions and our own perceptions and ask how we can tend to look for the wrong things. And when we do, that that may end up causing us to miss what God is actually doing. And so my prayer is that as we look at, quite frankly, a difficult section of Scripture, we will have the humility to hear our God speak to us from it. Uh, Sometime after the temptation, we're not told how long, uh, in the wilderness, uh, Jesus went home to Nazareth. And there, as was his pattern, he, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath to worship and to be with the people and to even teach. And for the reading of the prophets, they at the time in the synagogue, there would be different portions. They'd read from the law of Moses from the prophets. They came to the reading of the prophets, and, and he stood up and they handed him the scroll. And he read from Isaiah about God's promise to deliver uh, his people from oppression and slavery and blindness. And this was God's promise that after a time of discipline, he would return and show favor to and bless his people. This ties into that promise that Simeon in chapter 2 was longing for, what he called the consolation of Israel. Comfort, my people, comfort, declares the Lord. And having read about uh, this this restoration and this comfort and God's favor in, in, in Isaiah 61, Jesus says to everyone present, today, in your hearing, this scripture is being fulfilled. Now, initially, that pleased the people. How could it not, right? Think about how they were reading this. No more Roman oppression. No more blindness. No more physical infirmities. Everyone will be healed. Everyone will be healthy. Everyone will be free and prosperous and happy. And what's not to love? Who wouldn't want to hear that? But their approval was not a hearty submission to Jesus. They are not following him. They are using him. They see him as a means to an end. And they're willing to go along with him in order to get what they want. But the thing about Jesus is he's always able to see through hollow compliments. If only we could be so good. And he's willing to call them out. And so in one verse we hear, and they were all excited and loved what they're hearing. And the next thing, he turns to them and he says, Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Take care of your own household. Take care of your own people. Aren't we the ones living in Nazareth? Your own hometown? What we've heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So, What is it that happened in Capernaum? What are they referring to? What is Jesus talking about? And this is what Luke goes on to describe in verses 31 through 41. He goes and tells the back story. So let's read verses 31 through 41. 
Uh, and he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath day. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had an unclean, sorry, had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm, and they were all amazed. And he said to one, and they said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and a power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was set, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So while down in Capernaum, he he went to the synagogue, again as was his pattern, and he came across a man who was demon-possessed. And that demon knew full full well who he was. I know who you are, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. Can you imagine watching this? The synagogue's crowded. It's full. Many are standing by and watching. And in terror, they see a demon-possessed man. And as if that's not enough, this demon inside this man recognizes this stranger who just walked in. Worse still, the demon who would have struck terror into anyone there is terrified of this stranger, Jesus. Asking him, have you come to destroy us? And then, Jesus rebukes the demon and commands him to come out. And he obeyed. And this didn't just happen once. From the synagogue, Jesus goes on to Simon's house, Simon Peter, where he heals Simon's mother-in-law. And then he heals many more sick and he casts out many more demons who also declare him to be the Son of God. This is what happened at Capernaum. Multiple healings, multiple exorcisms. In fact, the language is used, everyone who came to him he healed. And yet the real story of Capernaum is not the healings, but the responses of the people and even the demons. The people were amazed, verses 32 and 36, and they recognized his authority. That word authority shows up a few times. Their response to his power was to focus more on him, more on his authority than they did on the signs and wonders. 
Did you notice what Simon's mother-in-law does in response to being healed? She gets up and she serves him and those who are with him. To her, being healed and recognizing who Jesus is could only result in one thing. Service and submission. That's the point. They recognized that the physical healing was was only a picture of something more important, a greater healing, spiritual healing. They understood that physical slavery to Rome was small to potatoes compared to slavery to sin and to the evil one. They understood that, that the Lord's favor that Jesus proclaimed had to be so much more than physical healing, prosperity, and political liberation. If they didn't have release from physical, I'm sorry, from spiritual slavery, then their political reality didn't matter. And if they did have spiritual freedom, then Rome's oppression was incidental. They truly understood what God's favor looked like. They recognized Jesus for who he really is, the Lord. And they delighted, they took joy in submitting to him. Later, when he was in Nazareth, he knew that those he met in the synagogue were interested in something very different. They thought that that liberation meant freedom from all authority. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what the devil tried to, to convince Jesus of in the preceding section that we looked at two weeks ago? Of course, there is no such thing as freedom from all authority. There is only submission to true authority and submission to false authority. They did not want to serve Jesus. They wanted him to serve them. They wanted him to heal them but make no demands. They wanted him to free them but require no loyalty. What's more is that they felt that since Jesus showed kindness to those in Capernaum, he somehow owed those in Nazareth the same, that he was obligated to show the same kindness to all. Now we know what this argument sounds like because we've probably heard it from our own lips, and if not our own lips, the lips of someone very close to us. It sounds like this. I don't know if I can believe in a God who lets some go to heaven and sends others to hell. How can I follow a God who allows so much pain and suffering in the world? If I was to believe in a God, it would be one that shows kindness to everyone. Whatever the variation is, you get it. You've heard it. You've thought it. That's exactly what we saw last time. 
It's the temptation to come up with a standard of what God must do if he is to convince you that he is good and loving. Throw yourself from the temple and see if the angels catch you. That's what a loving God would do. And those in Nazareth are following the devil's playbook to the letter. So how does Jesus respond? Does he take the bait? Does he immediately start healing everyone just to prove himself? Not for one minute. He points out that in the days of Elijah, there were many widows dealing with the famine. But God only provided for one widow who wasn't even a Jew. And then he reminds them that there were many lepers in the days of Elisha. But God granted cleansing only to Naaman, who also wasn't a Jew. Jesus is planting his flag. No one has the right to demand grace. Grace is undeserved, it is unrequired, and it cannot be demanded. God is free to show it to whom he will, when he will, and how he will. That is the case, has been the case, always will be the case. God is in charge, not us. And Jesus says, if that's offensive, be offended. Really, what he's telling those in Nazareth is that they don't understand God. They don't submit to God. They don't recognize his authority. They're only interested in getting him to serve them. And that reality is highlighted not just by the responses in Capernaum, but but by those two episodes he quotes from the Old Testament. Because if you go back and you read that, those 1 Kings chapter 17 and and 2 Kings chapter 5, you'll see that with the, the Sidonian widow, that after Elijah had miraculously fed her for a few years and then raised her son from the dead, her response was this, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Her response to Elijah's miracles was a recognition of him and submission to the word he spoke. And the same was true with Naaman the Syrian. When Naaman, uh, a great warrior, came to Israel, the king of Israel was actually terrified. Have the Syrians come to, to, to kill me? He's scared. And Elijah resp- or sorry, Elisha responds, Let him come now to me that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. That he may know God's word is spoken in Israel. And then before he would heal Naaman, he required submission. Do you remember the story? He says, you have to go wash in the, in the river. And Naaman says, just cleanse me here. Naaman was upset. He was not used to being told what to do. It was only when he recognized the authority of the prophet and submitted to it that he found cleansing. This is what those in Nazareth are missing. They are completely blind to who is standing before them. 
They refuse to submit to him. All they know how to do is make demands. And he isn't following. And so they rage. Verse 28, they are filled with wrath. Then they pushed and shoved him out of town to the edge of a cliff where they planned to throw him to his death. In a split second, they went from hearty approval to murderous rage because he confronted their pride. They could not see Jesus for who he is. They could not bring themselves to submit to a local boy a carpenter's son, that boy who grew up uh, with them, that boy who, who made their shelves, that boy who lived on the same small street in the same small town. Submit to him? No way. No wonder Jesus quotes the proverb, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. And yet everything that happens here in Nazareth is but a foretaste of what is to come. Because Nazareth, as Jesus' hometown, really mirrors the entire nation of Israel as his home country. Jesus would not just be rejected by his hometown, but by the entire nation. They would not just push him to the edge of a cliff, but they would hoist him up on a cross. And as they did, Those words, physician, heal yourself, would hauntingly echo on the lips of the religious leaders, the soldiers, and even the criminals who were with him. They said things like, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. Mockery, bitterness, rage by those closest to him. Their closeness was actually an obstacle to recognizing him, and they refused to submit. Beloved, how often is it we who are in the church who often feel the most entitled? How often do we who attend worship every week approach God like he's our childhood friend to whom we owe no respect, no honor, but who owes us everything, mercy, healing, grace. Like if he doesn't show everyone equal mercy, he has somehow failed. And if we don't make the demands, how often do we feel the need to make excuses for him to those who do? How often do we hide his authority? How often when confronted by others about some receiving mercy and others not, do we claim ignorance about his prerogative to show mercy to one and not another? How often do we allow ourselves to be made to feel uncomfortable by his demand for absolute and unqualified submission? Jesus was not afraid to make that authority clear. 
That was the point of the signs and wonders. And yet it's so easy to get lost in who is healed and who isn't in our passage. But there are many healings, and yet the focus at every point is on Jesus' teaching and his authority. There are those who received his healings and bowed to him and served him, and there are those who demanded healing that he bow to them and serve them. These wanted the sign, but not the word. They wanted the healing, but not Jesus. And they ended up with neither. And we have to ask, what did they expect? Did they truly expect to enslave the God of creation? That he would bow his knee in fear? Now make no mistake, God does serve those who come to him. However, he does not serve out of obligation. He will never be shamed into it, forced into it. He will only serve out of love. Let's look at where our passage ends. Luke 4, 42 to 44, the last three verses. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him. And would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. We're going to see this this week and next. But that word translated desolate place is the same word we saw in chapter 3 translated wilderness, and that's really the better translation. The wilderness was the place of punishment, of exile, of death. It's where the outcasts and the lepers lived. It's the place of suffering. That's where Jesus was tempted for 40 days. And this is where he went, preaching the good news of the kingdom. The good news is this. Jesus is willing to enter into our suffering and our affliction to save us from it. He's willing to allow himself to suffer in our place and not save himself. Because to do so would to keep him from saving us. He allowed himself to be bound and enslaved in order to set us free. He took on our affliction in order to grant us healing. That's who he is. That's the good news. The image of him entering into the wilderness is really just the perfect picture for him entering into our messed up world full of sin and death, slavery and oppression, sickness. And that's where he brings healing and good news. The question you have to answer is do you recognize him and do you bow to him? Do you submit to him? Those in Nazareth refused to recognize him. They couldn't get past the fact that he was Joseph's boy. They couldn't get over the fact that he was a local boy. The demons, maybe a little bit better, but not much, they recognized who he was. 
They acknowledged that he was the Holy One of God. They recognized him to be more than Joseph's son. In fact, they even, in verse 41, called him the Son of God. But they did not bow. They saw him only as a threat, as an enemy. But those in Capernaum, they saw his authority and they marveled. Simon's mother-in-law was healed and she responded with service. And that is the only appropriate response. So what about you? Do you doubt that he is worthy of your respect and your submission unless he meets your standard, unless he passes your test? Do you demand that he he heal every sickness and he remove every affliction? Do you demand mercy and then fool yourself into believing that that's fair and just? You see, mercy isn't what's fair and just. Or do you recognize that the last thing you actually want is justice? Do you acknowledge that without mercy... You have no hope. Do you acknowledge that mercy is without obligation or it's not mercy? Do you accept that that God has the prerogative to show mercy to whom he will? That's who he is and that doesn't change. It's important to know your enemy. We looked at that last time, but it's even more important to know your Lord. And so the question is, how do you respond? Things are not always what they seem. Not always what we convince ourselves that for them to be. That neighborhood kid whose dad runs the local wood shop just might turn out to be the Holy One of Israel, the Son of God. The one with absolute authority who has the power to heal and to save might just choose not to save himself so that he might be able to save others. Sometimes power is found in weakness, and sometimes the kingdom of heaven is found in the wilderness. And that reality is made visible for us in the Lord's Supper. Because here in the bread and the wine, we have reminders that the God who created all things took on flesh and blood and became man and entered into our wilderness, our reality, our place of suffering. And that he does not serve out of obligation, but out of love. He allowed himself to be bound and crucified in order to suffer what we deserve in our place. And he refused to save himself in order that he might save us. For those who have eyes to see, in the bread and wine we... See who Jesus truly is. And this bread and wine then belong to those who acknowledge who he is. It belongs to those who submit to his authority. And for all who do, they find in Jesus mercy and grace, authority and service. They find the power of God unto salvation. 
And please pray with me. Lord, we confess that we often try to control you. We often feel entitled to your blessings. We think that mercy is deserved, that grace is our birthright. Forgive our foolishness. Forgive our arrogance of thinking that we can control you and make demands for things to which we have no right. Teach us instead, we ask, to marvel at your word, to stand in awe of your authority, and to gladly bend our knees and to call you Lord. Amen.